Well, hey, if you're new to Colonial Hill, and a lot of you are, uh, through our At The Movie series in November, straight through Christmas, our church grew about 22% in Sunday morning attendance. Come on, that's awesome, church family. And we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. Speaking of Christmas, on Christmas Eve, I I shared a message that God had really put on my heart, and uh, I was talking about your pets, and some of y'all are dressing up your pets, and I told you to stop it because you think your pets like that. They don't like being in clothes. That's for humans, and pets don't need to be in human clothes. But apparently, some of you thought that was your opportunity to start texting me your pictures, and I'm getting a lot of pictures of your pets in clothes, and so my good buddy Albie Ream, he sent me this picture uh, on Friday of his cat, and... uh, (laughs) <laughs> Albie, stop. He's miserable. You know, look at that cat. That cat's not happy. And then I looked at it a little bit closer and I realized I actually own that shirt. I have the same shirt as the cat. Who wore it better? I think the cat, sadly. So just keep doing it. Anyway. To all of you who are new, we're glad that you're here uh, along for the ride. We have a very clear agenda. And uh, we didn't write it. God wrote it. In fact, it's all throughout his book. It starts in the book of Exodus, and it goes all the way through Revelation over 20 times in the Old and New Testaments. God has always wanted to take you on a spiritual journey. It starts with you knowing God, meaning God is not a church service. He's not a religion. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. God wants, he wants to, he, he wants to know you. Let's know God. Amen, everybody? Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is to find freedom. All of us have issues that keep us from the best versions of ourselves. I'm far from the best version of myself, and so what I'm continually doing is allowing God to take me on a journey to settle some of my issues. So we want to help you do that. We have programming and events, and we have things we want to show and give you to help you find freedom. Third, God wants you to discover your purpose. Now, I know some of you might think that you're an accident. You may have been told that by a parent, you're an accident. Listen, you are no accident. God knew that you were coming, and and I don't really care what a mom or a dad says. I only care what God says. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. So he had a plan for your life. God's always had you on his mind. And let me add to that, you can go pursue anything in this world outside of God, and there will always be an emptiness within you. There will always be a void, a, a, a lack of fulfillment, a lack of joy, because you have a God-given, let me just say, a divine design. There's a reason you're here. We want to help you discover that reason. And finally, we must do what I believe our church exists for, and that's to make a difference. So I think the church should wake up and start doing what we're called to do so that we can make a difference in this world that we're living, which is certainly broken. Now, here's the thing that's true about everybody in the room, is that on this spiritual continuum, everybody in here, I don't care if you've been coming to church for 70 years, everybody in here is somewhere on that spiritual continuum. You have a next step to take. And some of you actually even know what the next step you need to take in your spiritual continuum is, and I'm hoping you'll do that in 2020. But for some reason, some of us even know it, but we we don't move towards that step. You just need something or someone to kind of push you. Look in my eyes and hear me say this, to, to live the life that you're supposed to be living. And so at the beginning of the year, we, we can't think of a better way to start the year than with a, de- a time of dedicated prayer and fasting. We call it 14 days of prayer and fasting starting today. What's 14 days of prayer and fasting? It just means we gather every morning uh, in the weekdays at 6 a.m. I know that is early. I'm not a morning person. We're going to get up at 6 a.m., 6 to around 7, and we're going to gather here in this room, and we're going to pray. That's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. 
Uh, and we'll have focused times of prayer. It won't be just uh, disorganized and chaotic. We'll have some focuses every single day. And then we have uh, weekend prayer at 9 a.m., so in service, and then on Saturdays also at 9 a.m. I'll say this, if you've never been a part of a one-hour prayer meeting, you've robbed yourself of one of the greatest joys in life. It's just incredible. But for these 14 days, we're also fasting, and, and fasting is just denying yourself of something your flesh craves. We often associate fasting with food or fasting certain types of food, um, so you can be on a deeper level with God. I like to say it this way, that there's a process that begins in us that whatever I starve dies and whatever I feed thrives. So I'm, I'm going to say no to my flesh and I'm going to say yes to God. I'm going to really dive into him for 14 days and hopefully grow myself, reset myself physically, spiritually, emotionally. Jesus had three major teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, I want you to give, and I want you to pray, and I want you to fast. And our church, holistically, is very good at the first two. But for some reason, that fasting thing, and I wasn't taught a lot about fasting growing up, but uh, I want to I help you. I want to give you an accessible experience should you choose to join us, and I hope you will. First of all, when you fast, I want you to decide what type of fast you're doing. And by type, I mean there's lots of different types. Um, in the Bible alone, there's four or five different food fasts. So you can do a total fast, which uh, is water only. If you do that, just be wise about that one. Um, make sure that you're medically okay to do that. Uh, it just takes a little bit more uh, thought process. Just be careful with that. Might consult the physician. Um, there's a thing called a Daniel fast. Daniel in Daniel chapter one fasted from meats and 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 all the rich foods. It just it was a fruits and vegetables diet. So a lot of people I know do the Daniel fast. You might want to fast meals. Like say I'm just not going to eat lunch for the next two weeks. I'm going to fast that meal every day. Um, Maybe you fast something like television or social media. You get the point. There's just different types of fast. We just encourage you to ask God what it is, God, you want me to give away for 14 days. Again, not that those things are bad. It's just saying, God, you're better. And I'm going to deny myself, and I'm going to get more in tune with you. Disconnect from the world to reconnect on a deeper level with my Savior. So just ask God, and whatever he tells you to let go, do it. Do it. Here's what Jesus himself said. It's not on the screen, but Matthew 6, 16 through 18. It says, when you fast, and notice he didn't say if you fast. He assumed you're going to do it. He said, when you do it, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they were fasting. So they're sucking in their cheeks going, look at me, I'm fasting, right? They were, it was all about them. He said, truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head. And wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who's unseen. And your Father, who sees what you're doing in secret, will reward you. So there is a reward that comes when you fast. By the way, this is not about the fast. Uh, if you spend the next 14 days and, and, and you're not seeking God with your hearts, you, you've got to be getting closer to Jesus. Otherwise, you're just starving yourself for two weeks. Uh, if God doesn't get your heart, you're starving yourself. You didn't help yourself one bit. Make sure the real work that's going on is going on in here. And you say, God, I want to let this down so that I can get more of you. I just want to seek you. So we have this 14-day period where we have services every single morning. We'd love for you to join us tomorrow morning. If you have your Bible, let's jump into the text today. It's John chapter 4. And as you're turning there... I want to set the stage for you of what the story is. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but I want to set the stage for you. It's the story of the woman at the well. And a lot of you know this story, very familiar. 
And the Jesus and the disciples are separated for a little bit. And we don't know why they're separated. Maybe the disciples are running an errand. But it's one of the few times in Scripture where we see Jesus completely alone. And he's thirsty, so he goes to the water, uh, to a water well. And there's a Samaritan woman who walks up, and she's doing the same. And uh, Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. Now, normally, that wouldn't happen for two reasons. One was because there was this gender barrier. Men at that time in that culture believed themselves to be superior to women. So a man engaging a woman, and, and he didn't know in conversation, was, was uh, abnormal, to say the least. So I love that Jesus just smashes through that gender barrier. Can I get an amen from the ladies? That's awesome. And then a Jew, a Jew didn't talk to a Samaritan. So Jesus was a Jew. This was a Samaritan. And, and they had this 700-year hate fest that was going on between their two tribes. And these races didn't like each other. And praise God, Jesus smashes through the racial tension as well. So he's talking to her. And he says, hey, are you married? She says, no. And then he starts prophesying to her. And he starts reading her mail honestly. He goes, I know you're not married. In fact, you've been married five times. And the guy you're currently shacking up with is not your husband. And she's kind of taken aback by it because she's like, this guy, how did you know that? And she actually says, the Bible says, she says, sir, I perceivest thou must be a prophet. So she goes, I, I don't know how you knew all that stuff unless God told you that stuff. Maybe you are God. So she presses into the conversation and uh, he goes on to minister to her and says, I'll give you water where you'll never thirst again. That's where we pick up the story in verse 27. He says, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Surprised for the reasons I told you about, okay? The racial issue and the gender issue. But again, we've, we've talked about that. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? So John says, John's writing this story Years later, decades later, uh, from when this happened, and he says, so the disciples got back. He's one of the disciples. He says, we got back, and we see Jesus talking to her, but nobody asked, what do you want? Which is interesting that he said that. Because when you're telling a story, you don't often tell parts of the story that didn't happen. You, you didn't, and there was a circus, and there's no, there was no circus. You, can't, you, don't, you don't say things that didn't happen. When you're telling a story, you just tell the parts of the story that happened. Unless the Holy Spirit of God is convicting John as he's writing this, saying, you should have probably asked, what do you want? I mean, you're serving Jesus. He's your master. You probably should have said, hey, can I get you anything, Lord? Like if Jesus walked into the building today, I'm sure we'd be like, hey, you, you, want, you, want, you want a bottle of water? You want, you want, some, you want, a, you want a Tic Tac? You want, <laughs> what, what do you need, Lord? Anything I can get you. Right? And he goes, we kind of missed it that day. And he said, we also didn't ask, why are you talking with her? And John's going, oh, John, why didn't, like, we're the student, he's the teacher. We're the disciple, he's the rabbi. Like, hey, we don't understand why you're talking to her. This kind of surprised us. Why are you talking with her? We should have asked. We missed it that day. He goes on to say in verse 28, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now this town is not like miles and miles away. This all happens in a matter of minutes. So I just want you to picture that she's going across El Paso Avenue and she's going over to her little community, a couple hundred people saying, hey, I think I found the Messiah. 
And so they start walking across. Just picture this in your mind. There's 200 people walking across El Paso Avenue. She's like, right over there by that church. Yeah, by the well, over there by the church. There's, there, that's him. That's the guy. that He knew everything. He was reading my mail. So they're walking across. And I read humor into a lot of things. If you read the Bible and you don't see funny things in here, you need to read it again. It's really pretty funny. This next verse makes me laugh. The whole town's coming to see Jesus. And the disciples... Uh, See, the town is on its way. And look at verse 31. It says, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so there's a whole town coming over here, and they're like, Hey, y'all want to go to Butcher's Block? You know, like, <laughs> I'm hungry. Let's get something to eat. Like, I know food. I think you know I know food. Okay. Uh, you don't have to convince me it's time for lunch, but there's a good time and a bad time to go to lunch. This is a bad time. There's a whole town coming to meet Jesus. They're like, what, what y'all want to eat for lunch? <laughs> They're ready to go. I love that. So the disciples are missing it. They're complete disconnect between what Jesus is seeing and what they're seeing. And they, in the middle of the moment, said, let's eat. So since they brought up lunch, Jesus is just going to use lunch as a metaphor. Look at verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. He said, guys, lunch for me would be to reach this community. You see, the hundreds of people that are coming, that's lunch for me, is that I could reach them with the good news. That'd be a good for, meal for me. But they didn't, they didn't get that. They, they still aren't getting it. You know why? Look at the next line, verse 33. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? <laughs> he just explained, and they're missing it. like, well, maybe somebody brought him a six-piece. Maybe he had McNuggets. That's why he doesn't want to go to lunch, because he already ate before. <laughs> they're not getting it. I love it. So Jesus tries with round number two on this whole food metaphor. And he says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Because, guys, your food is food. Your, your food is lunch. My food is these people. We can go eat later. We've got a lot of work to do right now. He says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. He says, open your eyes. Open your eyes. Say it with me. Open your eyes. Say it one more time. Open your eyes. He's going, open your eyes, guys. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. He says, don't you see it? The reason the disciples were more concerned about lunch than they were about reaching the town, it isn't because they're awful people. They're really good people, but it was because they couldn't see what Jesus sees. So he goes, open your eyes. Open your eyes. There are scriptures all throughout the Bible that talk about the eyes. There's a, a text, in fact, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the whole body. What goes in here is dictating everything else. But here's what I've learned about eyes, is that these eyes don't actually see. Yes, I have them, and, and oh, I guess you see through them, but you really, you really have a set of eyes here too, in your heart. And Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.18, he says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And he goes, guys, like you're seeing with your eyes, but you're not seeing with your heart. Like there's, this community needs God. And I want you to open your eyes like you're seeing with your eyes, but you're not seeing with your eyes. And that's why, listen to me, church, we can all see the same thing and all see something different. And you've done that before. You've sat in a church service with somebody else, and they have this amazing experience with God, and you're like, eh, it was Okay. They got something completely different than you did. You heard the same sermon, but it was just, I, I, one of you saw it, one of you didn't see it. 
That's why Jesus says your problem is you're not seeing right. Open your eyes, guys. Look at the fields. It's ripe for harvest. You need to see it the way I see it, boys. And here's my prayer for you as we enter into a new year. It's very simple. Is we need to see Snyder, Texas, USA, and the world the way that Jesus sees it. And I'm convinced we don't. Think about it. If we saw Snyder the way Jesus saw Snyder, we'd live differently. But right now you could argue that all of us are living with a spiritual nearsightedness. I'm very lucky. I am... um, One of the only people in my family that doesn't have eyesight problems, my whole family, my mother, my sisters, my dad, my wife, my my youngest son have nearsightedness, um, and I'm thankful that I don't have that. Uh, When you're nearsighted, you just see stuff that's close to you. I'll take it a step further. You only feel responsible for what you can see. And so you see stuff that's close for for you, and if you don't see it, you don't feel responsible for it. So since I can't see you, I don't have to worry about you. I'll give you an example. So when I lived in Austin, we don't have this a whole lot in Snyder, but you've been to big cities and you've seen this before, is you'll pull up to a traffic light, and there is a panhandler that's there that's trying to you know, get some money from you, um, just looking for any kind of a handout, right? And you pull up to the light, and you see them, and they're, they're walking down the sidewalk right there where you're at, and they're coming to your car, and what do you do? <laughs> don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact. Come down my window if I don't have I'm going to look at my, look at my, look at my gear shift over there. Look at that. It's got a drive. It's got a reverse. It's got a neutral. Man, I wish I could drive. Oh, green light, go. All right. I'm not responsible for you because if I make eye contact, you're coming over to the car. You're going to beg me for money. So I'm just not going to look at you. I taught a Sunday school class last week, and I love the men that are in that class. But last week, I'm asking questions, and they're all, I asked like a question for everybody to answer, and they all did this. <laughs> don't look at him. He won't call on you if you don't look at him. Right? Spiritual nearsightedness is, is being focused on me. And it's not just in church. It's human nature. Look at any baby. Any baby. What's the first words a baby says besides mom and dad? Mine. My, you don't teach them that word. They just come out of the womb, mine, right? <laughs> mine. They just, it's, it's, it's in us. It's in our nature. Spiritual nearsightedness has a few characteristics that I want to point out just so you can make sure I'm not getting that way. Here's number one, is that you're blinded by your own needs. You can get spiritual nearsighted if you notice that you're getting blinded by your own needs. So here's how this plays out practically in my life. I start praying and I start listening to my prayers and my entire prayer life is... Dear Lord, me, 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 my, 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 my life, my wife, my job, my kids, my church, me, 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 my, 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 amen. And my whole prayer life is just centered around me. And I would love to ask you today is if God answered every single one of your prayers, would it change the world or would it just change you? Because I want my prayers to be so impactful that I would pray Big prayers for lots of people that if he, if he did answer every single one of my prayers, the world would be a better place. But right now, it'd just be my world that'd be a better place. That's, that's how I know when I'm getting spiritual nearsightedness. The second way you can know you're spiritually nearsighted is you forget about the needs of others. And this is true, especially for those of us who call America home because... We have the best of everything. We have the best sanctuaries. We have the best air conditioning. We, we have 20 options for lunch today. I mean, we, we have everything at our feet. We have the best of everything, and that's awesome, and to God be the glory. 
Unless we experience it so much that we forget that there's a girl in Amsterdam today who's already been used 20 times in a brothel. That's happening. Or the family that I met in Bolivia, who is a seven-person family that are living in a house that is five feet by five feet by five feet. I'm six foot two. I could not fit in their home. They didn't have a kitchen. They didn't have a restroom. They just went outside and used the restroom wherever they could find a spot. And this family exists, and and we can get so, (laughs) such tunnel vision on American living that we forget. We get insulated and forget about the needs of others. The third characteristic of a spiritually nearsighted person is we get away from the heart of the one we serve. The Bible is clear that God is distracted, and he's not distracted by his found kids, but by his lost kids. In fact, in Luke 15, there's three parables that are shared. And anytime you see three parables and they're all basically telling you the same thing, it's the Holy Spirit of God trying to get your attention. Hey, make note of this. It's pretty important. There's parallelism in all three stories. But you start seeing this, and it's a parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the moral of all three stories is he would leave the found things. God would leave those that were found to go look for the one that's lost. In fact, in one story, he says, I'll leave the 99 found things to look for the one of you that's missing. If you ever lost something, if you've ever lost anything that's of value to you, uh, didn't it just like eat at you? Right? If you lose your wallet, or where's my keys? Where's my keys? I, ha- I just had my keys. Where are my keys? Anybody find my keys? You see my keys? You see my keys? It just, it, like it consumes you. I can't sleep when I lose my things. I have dumpster dove looking for a lost wallet. We'll do anything, right, to find that what, what's just missing. And when you, when you lose things, you don't necessarily care about your found things. You just say, where are my keys? There is my refrigerator. No, you don't care about the refrigerator. You're trying to find your keys. I'm greatly distracted by that thing that is lost. Something of value is missing to God. Look at Luke 19.10. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Like, that's his whole mission. He loves your worship today. He goes, hey, thanks for singing so loud today. Breath in my lungs. I love that song. Thank you for singing it to me. I just want you to know I'm, I'm greatly distracted, though, church. Because some of my kids in Snyder are, are missing. They're lost. So often we aren't concerned for what God is concerned for. And I pray he breaks our hearts for what breaks his. I've asked God to pour fresh evangelistic anointing on Colonial Hill Baptist Church in 2020. I'm asking God for every single one of us as individuals that we capture the heart of God again. We want to be a church that's growing. And if you notice, we do have some space issues, which we're talking about tonight in our Sunday school meeting. And we have some parking issues. And if you have the eyes of God, you come in and you go, man, this is awesome. I have to park at the elementary school. Look at our parking lot's full. And that's, that's an exciting thing. If you don't have those eyes, you go, eh. man, we got to do something about this parking. And my Sunday school class is bursting at the seams and I don't like it, right? You, you got to open your eyes. Life change is happening here. And you got to go, man, I'm okay with that. I, I will park in Ira, Texas. I'm so excited about what God's doing here. I'm so excited. Open your eyes. I'm personally convinced, and I could be wrong, but I'm convinced that if Jesus could stand on this platform today, in 2020, and talk to his church. Now, if he was talking to a bunch of people who didn't know him, his message would probably be different. But if he were here today, in the flesh, talking to you, the church, Colonial Hill Baptist Church, I'm convinced he would say, open your eyes. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. 
There are people that you live beside, that you work beside, that you study beside, that you hang out with, who don't know me. Open your eyes. You want to go eat lunch. Focus on them. That's my lunch. That, that's, open your eyes. Open your eyes, church. Open your eyes. Why? Because you cannot reach what you cannot see. You cannot reach what you cannot see. If I don't see you, I can't reach you. So he's saying, open your eyes. They're everywhere. So how do we reach people? Paul would say it this way in Colossians 4. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace. I love that. Seasoned with salt. So just make it taste good. Give them a truth in a way that's palatable where they want it. You know, like, like make, it, make it good. Make it taste good so that they may know how to answer everyone. So I'll bring it to a personal level. With the time I have left, I, I want to train you how to be an evangelist in just a few minutes. It's really that easy. I want to show you how simple it is for us to be wise in the way we act toward outsiders. Four little steps. You can write these down. Number one is accept the personal responsibility. So just accept it. Like, that's my responsibility. I take the responsibility. Think of it this way. The only way Snyder is going to get saved is you. And God doesn't have a plan B. You're it. You're the plan. That's the great commission. Go make disciples. Do it. You're his plan. He does not have a plan B. I love 2 Corinthians 5, which says that we are Christ's ambassadors as though he was making his appeal through us. Like, we're it. We're Christ's ambassadors. He's making his appeal to Snyder through us. The way Jesus gets himself to this city is through you, his church. And some of you say, no, that's your job, Pastor Reed. I'm just going to sit here. I'm on amen and I'm on tithe. No, it's all our responsibility. So accept the personal responsibility. Okay, I get it. Like, we all have to do this. We can, we can change Snyder. If 12 men can change the world, what could three, 400 do? Come on. We can change Snyder, but we have to accept the personal responsibility. Accept it. Acts 17, 26 says that God has ordained the times and places men should live. What if God puts you exactly where you're at? I don't like my house. What if he puts you exactly where you are because of the neighbors that are around you? And he said to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. What if he meant your physical neighbor? Because I want you to go love on them. Or read, I hate my job. What if God puts you in that job for this reason? Because there's somebody in your job that needs to know about him. And he goes, I've got a better job for you, but I can't get you out of this job until you tell this person about me. Like, just open your eyes and go, this is my responsibility. The people I live beside, that I work beside, that I hang out with, that I go to the gym with, that I drink coffee with, these are the people I, that are in my circle of influence. What's your responsibility? That's it, your circle of influence. Whatever, whoever's in your world, make that your responsibility. i gotta, I got to tell you about Jesus. Here's the second thing. you got to develop a personal relationship. And this is often the missing piece in evangelism, but Jesus was an incredible relationship builder. It says that sinners drew near to him, that they, they wanted to be close to him, and he didn't say, oh, it's okay, just live like you want to live. He didn't do that. He wasn't just over-accepting. He says, hey, leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. But they still wanted to hang out with him, so he's still truth, but he's full of grace. He sees them with salt. They're like, I kind of like hanging around this guy. And so he built these relationships, and I would encourage you to build personal relationships with people. You've heard this before, but people don't care what you know until they know that you care. So they're really not rejecting your church or your theology. 
They've done polls, actually, of people who are unchurched. And they say, why aren't you coming to church? And there's not typically a big theological reason for that. Most of them will say uh, things like, the people there are unfriendly, or I don't understand what's going on. And those are things that we can fix. When you love people, it opens up the door for you, for them to hear from you. A few years ago, um, I had a buddy named Mike Rinaldi who, <laughs> Mike, we, we, did a, we did a flag football meetup. And we play flag football on Saturdays in, in Austin and Zilker Park. And as we play football, we had, so the intention was some Christians started it, but we wanted to reach all people. And so we hopefully build relationships and then lead them to Christ. That was kind of the plan. And we saw some, some really cool life change that happened there. There was a guy named Mike. He was from Philly, had a thick Philly accent. And he shows up one day. He's a big old tall guy. Shows up one time and we built a pretty good relationship. We kind of hit it off. We'd go to lunch occasionally. And then one Sunday, we were ever at Casey Arnold's house. Hey, Casey, how are you? Casey's joining our staff tomorrow. That's pretty exciting stuff. Uh, but Casey, um, <laughs> we are at Casey's house, and we're all watching football. And I can see the light bulb go on uh, for Mike, and we're all sitting there, and he goes, y'all are all Christians, aren't you? <laughs> and said, yep. And he, go, he thought for a minute, and he goes, Man, I thought Christians were dorks. I said, no, we're the coolest people you know, Mike. Like, we're not dorks, right? And he goes, no, you're not dorks. So we started hanging out with him, and, and, uh, and then he was, he was getting married. He was getting engaged to get married. And so he said, I see the way that you treat your wife, and I just think you do it well. And would you, would you train me? Would you teach me? And I said, I'd be honored to, man. This is before he became a follower of Jesus. I'm teaching him how to be a disciple. I'm walking through Ephesians with Mike. So we'd go and meet at Johnny Carino's every Wednesday for lunch. And we would, I'd walk through the Bible with him. He didn't even know what he was being discipled to. He just knew. He saw me and he said, you're doing something right and I want to figure that out. And so we have these conversations and I actually got to lead Mike into a relationship with Christ and I got to baptize him and his wife. I got to marry him and his wife and they're in Philly today. They have three kids. They're faithfully following Jesus. Come on, that's awesome. But it doesn't, it doesn't happen if day one he shows up on the football field and I say, hey, let me tell you about the Lord. No, that it's probably, it might, but it's probably not going to work. I built a relationship with him. And then he was more apt to listen to me because he knew I loved him and we were friends. Does that make sense? So build a relationship. Think about when you were led to Christ. I promise you, you probably don't remember the exact words that were said when you came into a relationship with Jesus. But you probably remember the person that was beside you telling him about you. Telling you about him. Relationships. Personal relationships are critical to evangelical wins. Number three is I want you to share your personal story. That's the best advice I could ever give you when it comes to sh just share your story. Just share your story. Because everybody's got their own story. Let me say this, this way. Our job is not to tell people what's wrong with them. It's to tell them the difference Jesus made in you. And there's a big difference. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So they're, they're just looking at your story. Right? So you come into work tomorrow and you're like, hey! Right? And they're like, what is up with you? It's like, happy Monday, everybody! What has gotten into Johnson, right? Well, I just, man, I just had, I'm sorry, I just had a great day. The Patriots lost this weekend and uh, I, uh, I was at church yesterday and I had an awesome time at church. It's awesome. Awesome day at church. Right? You got to come check it out. It should be this light in the office, the salt in the office. Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
And Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were standing, in Snyder, in all Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas, and to the ends of the earth. He goes, you're going to be my witnesses. Notice he says witnesses. When you go into a courtroom, there are four key players in the courtroom. Okay? You're not a judge. Stop judging people. If you're trying to win them to Christ, stop telling them what they're doing wrong. They don't have the same moral standard and compass that you do. Stop judging them. You're not a judge. Don't be a prosecutor. You're not prosecuting anything. You don't have to defend anything. You're the witness, Jesus says. He says, just go in and tell them your experience. Hey, this is what happened with me. I was blind, and now I see I was lost, and now I'm found. I was an addict, and now I'm not. God saved me. You just, you're just witnessing. You're telling what you've experienced, and that means a lot. Because, pe- listen, I can argue with an atheist until I'm blue in the face, and I can technically win the argument and still lose. I've done that. I've won the argument, and I've went away with my, my, my chest up going, ha, 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 showed him, and he never came to faith. But they can't argue your story. They can't refute that because it's your story. So just tell them what, hey, this is what, this is, this is what happened to me. And, and I, think, I think you ought to get your story down to a two-minute version. So don't go into like a 30-minute, just something where you could sit down over pizza and have a conversation in two minutes, tell them your story. So this is my story, okay? So you can just kind of fill in your blanks here. But I would say something like, hey man, I just want to tell you something you may not know about me. I grew up in a church, and when I was nine years old, um, actually at Colonial Hill, I got saved on this very front row. I was at Vacation Bible School, and I I made Jesus my Savior because I didn't want to go to hell. (laughs) That was the real reason. It's a few years later, and I went to an event uh, similar to maybe what you're experiencing now. There was uh, worship and, and a preacher, and, and I, I just remember in that moment going, I, I'm, not fully, I'm not fully in. And so I made him Lord of my life at that point. I said, I'm not just going to make you, make you Savior. I want to make you Lord. I want you to really lead my life. But I still had some moments of doubt, and so I got into college, and I was going to be a, a sports center anchor. That's what I really wanted to do, was be on television and... Uh, so I was at University of Texas, and their radio, television, film, broadcast journalism. And uh, there was a class called Journalism and Religion, and they went through all of the different religions of the world. So Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, all these different religions. And I started wrestling with, if I was born at a different latitude and longitude, I would believe something completely different than I believe today. So I went in there, and I tried to leave my... Christian subjectivity at the door and just said, God, what is truth? Because I didn't want to get to heaven and then be met by Muhammad and go, oh, man. Like, I didn't, I didn't want that moment, right? That's a pretty big question. What happens when you die? And so I'm in this class, and, and we're reading the Bhagavad Gita and the Quran and, and, and uh, the Bible. And then we would have, like, a Hindu priestess or a Buddhist monk or a Christian pastor come in. And as journalists, we would have to, like, ask them questions to try to get them to kind of back up in, in their faith. Like, if we could get them to stumble on these answers, then we would get graded well as journalists. And I, I, I can only say it this way, that at the end of the class, I was so convinced. I was so convinced that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. That he came to earth and he died for my sins and for your sins. And he gives you a better life on earth and eternal life in heaven. I was so convinced he was the way to God. That I said, I want to forgo my dream of being a sports center anchor. I'm going to forgo a dream of making more money and more fame. To tell people about Jesus. Amen. That, and and I, I, listen, and then I would just kind of follow it up with this. Again, personal relationship. Listen, I love you. And you know that I love you. And if you never accept Christ, it will never change my opinion about you. I think you know that about me. 
but I'd be a really bad friend if I believed that all of this was true and I never told you about it. I'd be a really bad friend. And so I just wanted to tell you my story, and I would invite you and to jump into that story. And that's the fourth step, is make the personal invitation. Like you got to have some sort of invitation. And if you're comfortable, lead them into a relationship with Jesus. You may not be comfortable, and that's okay. Bring them here. I promise you, every single Sunday, I will, I will give you the gospel. Every single Sunday. So if they come here, they're going to hear it. But you say, hey, just come to church with me one time. One time. Let's see what happens. Right? And just see what God is going to do. Tell people about Jesus. Invite them. And by the way, God is not something you attend. God is something you encounter. And that's what we're trying to create here is, is where people can come and encounter God. Encounter God. I didn't ask for permission, and I don't, I don't, uh, hope I don't offend this person. They're in the room right now. I want this person to know, I don't know this person, but I want them to know that I do love them, and that uh, this made my Christmas. But I saw this post on Facebook, and it says, last night was a great night, this Christmas Eve. Not going to lie about this, but I honestly haven't been to church in, in a good 12 years, except for weddings. Yes, terrible, I know. But last night, my family and I went. And I honestly felt like the preacher was talking about me and everything going on in my life. Felt like he was just preaching to me and hit me hard and touched, me, touched home in, in many, of way, many, many ways. Glad to say this is not going to be my last time going to church because I need it, and so does my family. Time to put Jesus first, because if he can die for our sins, we can live for him. Last night saved me, to say the least. Thank you, Colonial Hill, for a great service. Merry Christmas. And I love you who wrote that. I'm excited about this year for you, because you have no idea what God's going to do. But that's what happens. Somebody said, hey, come to church. I hate church. And they show up, and they're here today. I'm honored you're here today. I'm excited to become your friend. Jesus is someone who, if you have a face-to-face -face encounter, you'll never be a skeptic again. I would imagine there may be skeptics in the room right now, and I don't blame you because I don't know that the church, the big C American church, has done a great job of showing you who he is. But one of our dreams at Colonial Hill Baptist Church is we want you to have a moment like this person did, where you're in the presence of God and it is undeniable. I love you. Bow your heads and close your eyes. I'd love to just pray for you. There's some of you here today and you say, Reed, that's me. I had an encounter with God today. I know that He's speaking to me. I know it's Him. It's not you, it's Him. And I know He needs me to give my life to Him because He gave His life for me. He did, He died for your sins. And all your sins will be forgiven if you place your faith in him. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. So nobody looking around, I'd love to pray for you. And if you want to pray this prayer with me, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Like you can get saved. Your life can change just like this person I read about a moment ago. Your life can change today in an instant by praying this prayer. Won't you pray with me? Just say something like, Lord Jesus... 
I believe you came to earth to die for me, for my sins. I've done a pretty bad job of leading my life. And I'm asking you to lead me from this moment forward. Come into my life. Reset me. But with you as Lord and Savior. And then just thank him for the cross. Thank him for forgiveness. Jesus, we love you. And all God's people said, amen. Come on, church family. Let's welcome those who just put their faith in Christ for the very first time. I know they're in here. I love it.